I'd like you to open your Bibles this morning with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. I want to go back to verse 51 and, uh, and pick up the narrative in verse 51. Boy, you can tell I'm from the south because I just hear a little bit of it and it just goes off in me. It just, it's like, rewind to those days. Um, Luke chapter 9 verse 51. We talked about this uh, a little bit at the end of the um, last message from Luke, which was two weeks ago, and we overlapped, but I want to go back and pick it up because this is an important uh, transition in Luke's narrative. Um, He's been giving us a lot of uh, events and incidents that happened in Jesus' early ministry, which probably took place over a period of a couple of years. Um, There's a whole section in there that John covers that uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not cover. And so uh, we're kind of back toward the end of his ministry. And in verse 51, it says that when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. This marks the turning point where Christ takes His ministry uh, down through Samaria and toward Jerusalem in the last six months or so with the intent of fulfilling His purpose in coming, which is ultimately to go to the cross as the Redeemer for our sin, the one to pay the price for our sin, to die on the cross, to be buried and to be raised again, and ultimately to ascend back to the Father, uh, opening out the church uh, period of time that we're living in today. Luke looks ahead to the ascension. It's like he takes that whole event and looks ahead to the ascension uh, as the triumphant resurrection of Jesus Christ and His uh, time when He goes back to heaven as we wait on His return. And He lets us know that at this point in Jesus' ministry, He is making a decisive turn with the intent of fulfilling His goal. We can relate to this. When it says, uh, He determined to go to Jerusalem, or as one uh, gospel says, He set His face toward Jerusalem. Uh, you and I understand that expression. We use it sometimes regarding things that are very important to us. And we're determined we're going to have them. We make the decision to move in that direction. And nothing is going to get in our way. We're going to fulfill that. We're going to accomplish it uh, no matter what the cost. And Jesus now makes this turn. He is going to Jerusalem. He is going to fulfill His mission Uh, He is all out with that intent. And as they begin their journey, they're going to go down through Samaria, which is over to the west of the Jordan River Valley. They're going to move through Samaria and come at Jerusalem uh, from the western side, from over by the Mediterranean, not that far west, but that's the area, coming into Jerusalem from that area. And it's very interesting that he has sent out... uh, kind of emissaries ahead of him to go to the villages of Samaria and set up a place for him to spend the night and, you know, get a meal and get refreshment. 
And uh, so uh, he's probably given them an indication of how much uh, travel he expects to accomplish in a day. It's, it's about a 70-mile walk or so. And uh, they come to the first village that has been designated. And he looks for the lodging, and only to find out that no one in that village is going to accept him. Uh, they are completely rejecting him. They've had notice. They've kind of put their heads together. And they said, we're not having any Jewish preacher, teacher in our town, no matter who he is. We're not having him. And um, you can imagine kind of the situation if you had been walking about 15 to 20 miles, which is about how much territory they would cover in a day, depending on the terrain and the grade and all of that. Uh, you've been walking for that kind of a distance and um, that's, you know, uh, eight to ten hours, depending on your gait. And you get there, and no one's going to let you rest. No one's going to let you stay with them. No one's going to feed you. Uh, perhaps, uh, you know, you didn't have sufficient food along because you were planning uh, to count on the Mideastern hospitality that all of them are so noted for. I mean, it was it was just a very odd thing that they would come to this first village and be turned away. And it irks the disciples. It particularly irks James and John. Um, you notice what they say. He sent messengers ahead. They went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. It was prejudice driving their rejection. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on toward another village. It's, it's just interesting to me that the disciples have been with him for two and a half years and there's some things they still don't get. Take them to the breaking point, stretch them a little bit, uh, bring them to the level of exhaustion, and uh, put them to the test, and James and John fail colossally. Lord, you just say the word, and we'll pray the prayer. We're going to call down fire and consume this whole village. And, and Jesus says, guys... <laughs> You have no idea the spirit that is driving you. That is not my purpose. I did not come to destroy lives, but to save them. And, and even in this Samaritan village, if there were any possibility of redeeming them, uh, I would gladly do so. It's interesting that Luke tells us in his uh, book of Acts, as we get a little further along, that when revival comes to Samaria... Peter and John go to Samaria to explain to them how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, one writer that I was uh, reading mused, would it be possible that John is going back to this same village that has now responded to Jesus Christ and turned to Him with their whole heart, and he's there explaining to them uh, the full message of the Gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to transform their lives. God has a way of bringing us back around to things. But in the midst of this, one of the things that's, that stands out 
as you think about these disciples and they're wanting to, to, to just bring judgment and, and, and rain fire and brimstone down on this village, that we are living in a time of grace. This is the time from that point until now. This is the time when the hope of the gospel is held forth to anyone who will listen. This is the time of salvation. Today is the day. Now is the time, the Scripture says, to respond to Christ in, in saving faith and to trust Him. Jesus has, has come and offered redemption to all who would receive it. You can have your sins forgiven. You can have uh, an opportunity to be completely cleansed. You can have eternal life. And you can spend eternity with me in my Father's heaven. I'm preparing a place for you. This is the time for that. This is not the time for judgment. That time is coming. And for, for many of us, sometimes we look at, at people who are obviously wicked. And they prosper. And we kind of scratch our heads and say, why do the wicked prosper? In fact, the psalmist raises that very question. Why do the wicked prosper? Why is it that people that are ungodly and cheat and, and lie and have all kinds of uh, bad morals? And why do they do so well so many times? Why do they take advantage of the poor? Why do they take advantage of the righteous? Why do they get away with playing by a different set of rules? Well, how does this happen? And why doesn't God judge them? Why doesn't He deal with them? Why doesn't He send fire from heaven? And the reality is that this is a day of grace. Judgment is coming. And there will be a time when they face Jesus Christ, not as Savior, but as the righteous judge. And our message and our mission is to pray for them and to offer to them, even in their wickedness, the hope of life eternal. God can change their heart. He's in that business. And this is the day of salvation. James and John needed to learn that lesson. And it took them a while. And it takes us a while. You know, it takes us a while for, for God to begin to work in our heart after we purpose to follow Him. Uh, the process of becoming Christ-like in our behavior and in our attitudes is a long process. And it takes some time. And I think that message is important. So along the way, as Jesus begins this journey, verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I think the response that Jesus gives to this man is indicative that this guy that comes is coming with enthusiasm, with excitement. He's, he's all set to be a follower. He probably has some romantic ideals of what it would be like 
uh, to be joining that group of disciples and follow Jesus. Uh, wouldn't, this, wouldn't this be a great way to invest my life? I think I'll do that. And you remember in another place, Jesus said, No one who sets out to build a tower does so without evaluating the cost. Because if he sets out to build a tower and he doesn't think about what it's going to cost, he's going to get like halfway through and run out of material and run out of money. And he's going to look like a fool. You know, we've had some buildings uh, in this area like that. I remember going down 31, there was one particular area where there was a building that stayed like half built for several years before somebody finally came in and, and took over the project and got it going again. You know, and you look at these things and you say, what, didn't they think? I mean, how did this happen? Did they go bankrupt? I mean, what happened to this situation? Jesus said, no one sets out to build a tower without counting the cost. He said that in the context of discipleship. And so here's this guy who's saying with all enthusiasm, I want to be a follower. I want to go with your disciples. I want to be one of them. I think this would be a great, a great thing to do. And Jesus says, wait a minute. Did you happen to notice that I didn't have anywhere to sleep last night because the Samaritans turned me out? Did you happen to notice that I don't have anywhere I can lay my head? The birds have nests, the foxes have holes. I don't even have what the animals have right now. I am essentially without a home. I am without a place to rest. And my mission is costly. It's going to require a great deal from me. It may mean that I sacrifice my comfort. It may mean that I give up my security. It may mean that I live in a place that is dangerous and hazardous. It could be that following me is going to put you in a place of tremendous risk. I remember hearing our, one of our former presidents in the Christian Missionary Alliance, Dr. Lewis King, talk about uh, going to uh, the Philippines and Southeast Asia and thinking back to the turn of the last century when we sent the first missionaries into that region and the first six or seven of them were buried there. They died within a year or two of their arrival. The same thing happened when we first went to Africa uh, back at the uh, early days of the last century, that many of the advanced missionaries, young people with deep commitment and a desire to share Jesus Christ, paid with their life and their blood the cost of paving the way. Most of you know the story of the missionaries to the Aka Indians um, Jim Elliott and his company that in the early 1950s uh, determined that they would reach the Aka Indians uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ in South America, but they didn't know why they were coming. And when they landed their pontoon plane on the river, uh, the Aukas murdered all of them with spears and, and bow and arrow and killed them all, all five of them. Those men left wives and children uh, for the most part, and died until at last another wave of people could go and begin to uh, make headway into that village. Uh, there came a day when 
one of the wives of one of those slain men was able to embrace one of her husband's killers and welcome him to faith in Jesus Christ because he had come to know the Lord Jesus Christ some 10, 15 years later as the gospel finally went there. But the price of sharing Jesus Christ with the Aucas was the price of the blood of five of the first advance guard that went into the region. Friends, the cost of following Jesus is high. And he wants this fellow to know, I don't have any place to sleep tonight, and if you're planning to come after me, you might not either. And you need to think about it before you just give me this exuberant answer. You need to weigh the cost of discipleship. And then Jesus, uh, Luke gives us two more stories in the context of this of two people who one of them was invited to follow Christ and the other one expressed an interest in following Christ, but they had some family issues they wanted to settle. The first fellow Jesus invited to follow. He said, come after me, follow me. And this man said, I'll happily do that. But first, I need to go and bury my father. And Jesus responded to him, Let the dead bury their dead. You come now and follow me. And then another one said, I'll follow you, but if you don't mind, I'd kind of like to go say goodbye to my family. And Jesus said, No one who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is worthy of me. Now, I've spent a lot of years trying to understand these verses. Um, they seem very harsh. They seem, uh, well, they just seem harsh. What is Jesus really saying? Uh, people have tried all kinds of ways to explain around them what they meant. Uh, I remember reading a commentary one time that said that uh, what the first fellow meant was, uh, in the culture and context of the day, um, I really can't make that decision right now. My dad's still alive, and I need to, to be under his uh, leadership. When he dies, and I bury him, then I'll be free as the head of the household to do whatever uh, I would like to do. And at that time, uh, I will give some consideration to being your follower. That sounds very good. But it doesn't fit the language of the text very well. It really seems as though Jesus is saying to this man who perhaps just received news that his father had died. I want to go back and bury my father. And we need to, to sit as a family the, the seven days of Shiva, the uh, Jewish mourning period. And after that is all finished, then I will gladly come and follow you. And Jesus is actually saying to him, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. If you're going to be my disciple, you need to make that decision now. And you need to put me first. You need to follow me. Let the dead bury their dead. The other fellow, in a way, uh, alludes back to Elijah and Elisha in 1 Kings chapter 19. It's a very interesting story. Elisha was the successor prophet to Elijah. 
And in 1 Kings 19, God tells Elijah to go and anoint Elisha to be his follower. And so Elijah, you've got to get the J's and the SH's separated. Elijah goes and finds Elisha, and when he finds him, he's plowing a field with a pair of oxen. Actually, the scripture says there's, uh, there's 12 pair of oxen, but Elisha is behind a pair of them, and he's plowing the field. And Elijah comes up and puts his mantle, his, uh, like his wrap, his coat. He throws his mantle on Elisha, and he says, Elisha, come follow me. And Elisha says, uh, let me go and kiss my mother and my father. Let me go say goodbye to my family. Now, in that situation, uh, Elijah says, well, all right. And so, Elisha goes back. And what comes next is very fascinating. Because it makes Jesus' point even though the intermediate step is a little different. Elisha goes back, and he kills the two oxen. He kills his oxen. And he breaks up his plow, and the harness, and the tack, and everything, and he builds a fire. And he cooks the oxen over the fire as a sacrifice to God. And then he offers the meat to all the other people around him. And then he goes and follows Elisha, or Elijah. And the significance of that action is that Elisha destroyed his means of livelihood. He killed his oxen and broke up his plow. He was in essence saying... I am turning my back on my lifestyle and my way of life. And I am going to follow Elijah as the prophet that God has anointed to be his successor because I want to be in the will of God. And he destroyed his hope of going back by killing the oxen and and burning the plow. And so Jesus says to this fellow when he says almost in the same words, I need to go say goodbye to my family. We don't know where the family was. That may have taken two or three days. And Jesus says to him, in a story that was probably familiar to him, No, no one who sets his hand to the plow and then turns back is worthy of following me. You need to decide right now if you're going to follow me. Listen, there's a message here that we need to take to heart today. Because Jesus is speaking in very plain terms. There is no question that the scripture commands us to honor our parents. In fact, the scripture says this is the first commandment with a promise. Honor your father and your mother that it may go well with you and that your days may be long upon the earth. It is a biblical command that children of any age are to honor and respect their father and their mother. There's also no question that the Scripture upholds the sanctity of marriage. The Scripture says, For this cause a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And when you study uh, what is meant by that, 
uh, even in their culture where the bride often left her family physically and moved with her bridegroom to the uh, extended family by building a room on, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, maybe they would build another room in the back with a courtyard in between, and she was living in the extended compound of the parents. The meaning is unmistakable that the relationship between a husband and wife is even more important than the relationship between children and their parents. That there comes a time when a man has to accept his independence and his responsibility. And when a woman makes a commitment to him, and as a new family unit, they begin to forge their path. And the scripture upholds the sanctity of that union and that relationship. And in Malachi chapter 1, God says very plainly in chapter 2, I hate divorce. I hate divorce. And so God is very clear about his feeling and attitude toward that and about the marriage and how significant and important it is. And then the scripture holds up the blessedness of children as a gift of God and how important they are. That they're a a sacred um, privilege and, and responsibility, a stewardship. They don't belong to us. They belong to God and we have a responsibility to nurture them and to care for them, and to provide for them, and to be sure that they grow up in the ways and admonition of the Lord. It's so terribly important. We cannot think of any relationships on this planet that are more important than marriage, and our parents, and our children. But what Jesus Christ is saying in this passage is, I trump them all. I must be number one in your life. I must take preeminence over all other relationships. Your commitment and your loyalty to me is first and foremost above all other relationships. I'd like to read to you a a passage from Matthew. Uh, Boy, it's just uh, no telling what's liable to come out of my mouth sometimes. A passage from Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39. You don't have to turn there, but make a note of it. uh, Yep, you're going to have to make a note of it because it's not in your notes. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. What Jesus is saying here is unmistakably clear. Your loyalty and your commitment to me takes precedence over everything else in your life. And as important as your relationship is to your parents, if I call you to go to the ends of the earth to carry the message of Jesus Christ and the good news of salvation, and it means you have to leave your parents, so be it. If I call you uh, to be a follower of, of me, and your parents oppose you, and you have to 
forsake their counsel and their guidance to follow me, so be it. I was raised in a Christian home. I went to church every Sunday. My mother professed Christ. My father had already died by the time I was uh, a senior in high school, but but my mother was living and we were uh, faithful church attenders, but I was miserable. I was struggling with God. I was having a difficult time. I felt that he was um, wanting to change my life in ways that I really didn't want him to do. And I had planned all my life to be a physician. From the time I was three years old, I wanted to be a doctor. And the day finally came when I was so miserable and I was so depressed and the loss of my dad had made such an impact on me in in a negative way that uh, in my despair, uh, I was about ready to end my life. And I came to the place of saying, Lord, if you don't take my life and fix me, I'm just broken. I'm not going to be worth anything. I'm not even sure I'm going to keep living. I need you to change me. And I felt God saying very distinctly to me, are you willing to give me your whole life without reservation? And I responded to him, yes, it's not worth anything to me as it is anyway. And so I surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And within a few months' time, I knew distinctly that he had called me to preach the gospel. Did you know my mother was irate? She was furious. It upset her no end. She had expected me to go on to medical school, to become a successful surgeon, to make lots of money, to have all of the distinguishment and prestige that goes with that position, to be admired and oohed and awed by all the family, and to be able to say, look at my son. He is a doctor. It was hard. It was hard. For me to follow Jesus Christ was to go against everything my mother desired. It meant I had to change my direction for college. It meant that I had to go in a completely different uh, purpose. My mother was uh, at first not even willing to to help or to support me, uh, even though I had uh, railroad income coming from my dad that was uh, intended for my college education. Uh, Initially, she was not happy about that. And in essence, uh, to go and follow Jesus Christ meant to severely disappoint her. It It was a high price, and it was kicking against the goads, as it were. But friends, if that's a decision you have to make, that's a decision that's required. There's nothing more holy and sacred on this planet than the relationship of marriage. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 18, Paul says a very interesting thing. He says, if you're married to an unbeliever, don't do anything to disrupt that union. Because you never know that if by your testimony and the way you live your life in front of them, You might win your husband or your wife to faith in Christ. You may have that influence on them. But on the other hand, if you're married to an unbeliever and they do not want to live with you because of your faith, let them go. Following me is more important 
than your marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, read it for yourself. And he goes on to say, so then, you don't know if you might be able to influence your spouse to follow Jesus, but if they refuse to live with you, you are not under obligation in that regard. As I said in the uh, 8 o'clock hour, and it's true now, it would take me about an hour and a half to explain all of the fine print of that passage. <laughs> there, are, there are some people I've seen through the years that um, are so obnoxious that they drive their spouse away. They're so intent on uh, being God the Holy Spirit in their home and uh, chastising and challenging their mate every time they blink and criticizing everything they do, and then when they get frustrated and say, I can't live with you anymore, then they cry out and say, woe is me, the unbelievers leaving, good riddance. And guess what? Uh, they didn't leave because of Jesus, they just left because you're so obnoxious, nobody can stand you anymore. Uh, I've seen that happen through the years, and that's kind of a sad uh, note to that. So you have to be very careful that in the full fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and self-control and exhibiting all of the fruit and manifestation of the Spirit, if you live with an unbeliever who just hates Jesus and hates you because of it, then the Scripture says you're not under obligation. But Jesus Christ has to come before the marriage. Jesus Christ has to come before the children. Friends, I don't know if you've noticed this, but my kids didn't come with an instruction manual. And I don't think yours did either. And here's one thing I know. Apart from the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you and I don't have the sense to raise them properly. We need all the help we can get. And coming under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and making Him number one is the best way I know to get divine wisdom and guidance and counsel for providing leadership and training and development for our children. But we absolutely cannot make them the priority of our lives. You've seen parents that do that. They, they live for their kids. They worship their kids. Their lives center around their kids. And the fact is, our lives need to center around Jesus. Because if your lives center around your kids, you know what you're going to make? You're going to make obnoxious brats who think that they, the world does revolve around them. You need to have Jesus Christ first and foremost in your life and keep your home in that balance where He is Lord and when He is number one. And then, and then you have a chance of the other things coming together. So Jesus says, you must put me first above all other considerations. I'm more important than your parents, more important than your children, more important than your marriage, more important than your security. I'm more important than your job or your career. I'm more important than your reputation. In fact, I'm more important than your health or your life. I'm the most important person in your life. You need to put me first. That's the requirement. To be my disciple. In fact, the scripture is very plain that following Jesus is not a part of our life. He is our life. Following Him is what our life is all about. To be a follower of Jesus Christ is to come under His Lordship. Not because we're afraid. 
although that's not a bad thought. (laughs) It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. But he loves us, and he's given his life for us, and the price that he paid for us cannot compare to what he asks of us. To follow him out of love is the most important decision we'll ever make. And it has to be one we consider carefully and make with abandon. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? If you're like me, as I prepared this message, I had to take stock. I needed to take inventory. Have I allowed anything in my life to become more important than Jesus? Because that thing or that person is an idol if they have. Father, I pray that you would draw our hearts to you. And Lord Jesus, that we would follow you with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. That we would love you from the core of our being. And be serious about the business of being your disciple. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.